This is a sermon from New City Presbyterian Church in Cincinnati, Ohio. To learn more about New City or to hear more sermons in this series, visit newcitycincy.org. Our scripture reading this morning is from the book of 1 Thessalonians chapter 5, verses 1 through 10. We will begin on page 987 in the Bibles in your rows if you'd like to follow along as I read. 1 Thessalonians 5, verse 1. Now concerning the times and the seasons, brothers, you have no need to have anything written to you, for you yourselves are fully aware that the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. While people are saying there is peace and security, then sudden destruction will come upon them as labor pains come upon a pregnant woman, and they will not escape. But you are not in darkness, brothers, for that day to surprise you like a thief. For you are all children of light, children of the day. We are not of the night or of the darkness. So then let us not sleep as others do, but let us keep awake and be sober. For those who sleep, sleep at night, and those who get drunk are drunk at night. But since we belong to the day, let us be sober, having put on the breastplate of faith and love, and for a helmet, the hope of salvation. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through our Lord Jesus Christ, who died for us, so that whether we are awake or asleep, we might live with him. This is the word of the Lord. Thanks be to God. Well, good morning, friends. I'm Brian. I'm one of the pastors here. How many of y'all ran the Aruna on Labor Day? Participation. That's fine. Put your hands up. Yeah, it's good. We had a great group. Thank you for doing that. We uh, had by far the most participants from any church or organization. We had over 100 folks from New City participate. Thank you to Pastor Ryan, to you for organizing. We've been doing the Aruna run for a long time now, uh, for years. Here's a picture of some of our cold children Uh, That's our three girls and Lucy. That was 10 years ago, back when the Aruna used to be done at night on UC's campus. We've been doing this um, for a long time. The picture really isn't terribly relevant. I just thought it was kind of fun. Uh, We were having a debate via text uh, about what Eden is eating. We thought maybe raw potato. Uh, You know, the picture's so old, like even cell phone cameras weren't great back then. But I think we landed on maybe banana uh, is maybe what that was. Well, you know, we also have the Gem of the Highlands 5K coming up here in the neighborhood. Happens in November. Previous years, it started and ended right out front. It's a fun little street party. Um, But they moved it over to Factory 52 this year since we're not really set up for hosting at the moment, unless there was like mud wrestling or something involved uh, with the race, or maybe one of those mud races you like dive in at the end. Um, maybe we can have a strong representation at the Gem of the Highlands 5K. Uh, but you know, I have mixed feelings about like races like this. On the one hand, they're a lot of fun, great community event. On the other hand, they also take work and preparation. Right? I've done some little races over the years, and my feelings are mixed because I what I don't love is the ongoing training and running necessarily. However, signing up for a race of some kind means that there is going to be a day of reckoning. And so you'd better be ready. And so signing up actually gets me into gear, right? There is race day. The day is coming, whether that's the Aruna or the Gem of the Highlands, the Flying Pig Marathon or an Ironman or whatever it is, there's a day of reckoning, right? It kicks us into gear. We plan Uh, You know, we might use a training program or an app. We plan backwards from that day to determine what we should be doing today. The knowledge that race day is coming gets us out of bed to train today. What happens if you don't train? 
pain, probably, suffering, blisters. And we used to do the water station at the Flying Pig. We used to be down at mile 24 along the marathon route and talk about pain. You could tell who had prepared and who didn't down at mile 24. And if you don't prepare, you know, maybe you don't even finish. Students understand this, right? You're in the thick of this with school. Maybe you have a test day, an exam day coming up, a presentation, a paper is due. There's a day of reckoning coming. I had a musician friend who called this idea like showtime. That is, come showtime, you've got to be ready, ready or not. It is showtime. Better be prepared. Either way, the curtain is going to open and it's time. Race day, test day, showtime. The coming day of reckoning informs today's behavior. Last week, Josh mentioned how death is of universal concern, right? Death rate for humans, 100%. It's going to happen for all of us. So by definition, it's universal. Also, kind of universal interest in evergreen speculation is the end of the world. And that's where we're at this morning. Not only because, you know, it's a fascinating idea, but because in a very real sense, our world will end sooner or later. We all have a personal apocalypse, right, built into our own mortality, and then we have all the movies about the end of the world. We have songs about it. And there's book series. There's the doomsday clock. The last time I checked, we're like 90 seconds till midnight. Nowadays, watching cable news gives you the impression that the apocalypse is upon us. Right? You name it. The end of the world as we know it is a perennial source of curiosity and speculation. Now, whether Jesus' return was causing these Thessalonian Christians anxiety or whether they were just curious, we don't know. But Paul says... They already know about this stuff. He doesn't need to tell them, but then he proceeds to tell them anyway. I learned this week that that's a, an old literary device called paralipsis. Right? We do this all the time when we say not to mention blank. or like We say we're not going to talk about the $20 that I loaned you last Friday, let alone the $50 you mooched off of me the week before that. Uh, I'm not even going to go. It goes without saying that you owe me $100 in the last month. Right? So we say I'm not going to talk about it, and then we proceed to go on talking about it. That's what Paul's doing here. He's like, I don't need to tell you about it, but I'm going to tell you anyway about the day of the Lord. Now, the day of the Lord, it's a term borrowed from the prophets, Ezekiel, Joel, Zephaniah, Amos, Obadiah. I mean, pretty much all of them talked about this idea of the day of the Lord. So it's a term because it has certain meanings in its orbit. It rings a lot of bells when Paul uses it here. So when he says the day of the Lord, he's intentionally bringing to mind all that goes with it. When the prophets spoke of the day of the Lord, they were looking forward to the day when God would finally intervene to punish the disobedient, save the faithful, make all the sad things come untrue, and put, right thing, put things right once and for all. There's a lot involved here in this idea. We can't possibly get into all of it this morning. I'm not even sure I understand all of it, but I was tremendously helped by an essay by a guy named Jason Derushi. I hope I said his name right. Uh, he has, in this essay, dozens and dozens of scripture references, and he summarizes what Paul's alluding to with this phrase. He writes this in summary. It's a little dense, but hopefully it will help us. He says, The Old Testament portrays the day of the Lord as punishment through overlapping in- images of cataclysm, war, and sacrifice. It highlights the day as renewal by emphasizing how God's presence will rest on his people in the midst of a messianic Davidic reign. The New Testament then identifies Christ Jesus as the one who fulfills the ultimate day of the Lord, inaugurating it in his death and resurrection and consummating it at his second coming. For the elect, Jesus' death signals the satisfaction of God's wrath against sin and his resurrection marks the start of the new creation. For non-believers, however, the day of the Lord's wrath is still future and it will come with cataclysm, 
war, and sacrifice as the warrior God will enter into space and time to punish his enemy and reconstitute right order wherein he is exalted over all. That's a lot. So a few highlights. First, the day of the Lord has a punitive element. That is, there's punishment involved. It's not all that it is, as we'll see, but that's a part of it. You know, think of this as the stereotypical ominous warning uttered by moms everywhere. Just wait until your father gets home, right? The idea is that there will be consequences for action someday, right? The day of the Lord involves punishment, specifically punishment for sin. Not only that, but the day of the Lord involves renewal as well. Evil will be punished and banished, and God will be with his people right here with us, finally and forever through our rescuer, the Messiah, the Savior. Renewal. A renewed heavens and new earth. A new city, if you will. We now know and understand Jesus as the one who inaugurates the day of the Lord and his kingdom in his death and resurrection, which will come finally and fully when he returns. Darushi says elsewhere in his essay, Christ's death and resurrection is signaling the dawn of the day of the Lord, and with it, the new creation. Jesus inaugurated the kingdom. The kingdom of God is at hand and will come someday in fullness when Jesus comes again. This is what we believe. We say we believe every time when we say the creed. Jesus was crucified, died, and was buried. We say he will come again to judge the living and the dead. This is the mystery of faith. Christ has died. Christ is risen. Christ will come again. This is what we believe. This is what we proclaim. And in fact, every time we come to the Lord's Supper and take the bread and the wine, Paul says that that act is a proclamation of Jesus' death until he comes again. Jesus is the key to the day of the Lord. It's inauguration, and he'll be key to the kingdom coming in all of its fullness someday. Now, Jesus has inaugurated the kingdom Right? The day of the Lord has dawned, but it has not fully come, and it won't fully come until he comes again. Some folks talk about the already and the not yet. Christ and his kingdom have already come, but Christ and his kingdom have not yet come in all of its fullness. The already and the not yet. Now, what's really kind of wild about this to me is that Paul considers this stuff about Jesus returning Christian basics. Right? Remember, Paul said he didn't really need to tell them about it because they already know it. This is like Christianity 101 stuff. The Thessalonian church was new. These were baby Christians. I guess everybody at the time was kind of baby Christians. And yet, Paul says they know about the day of the Lord. They know what it means for them. They understand the implications for living. So clearly, Paul and the prophets and Jesus, they all think that this is need-to-know information. And I wonder if we have neglected it and maybe poorer for it. You know, one last thing, and this is a hard truth, kind of ties in with punishment. The day of the Lord means the pouring out of wrath on unbelievers. Over in the beginning of the book of Romans, Paul uses the image of God's wrath as being stored up like water behind a dam. The wrath of God will be poured out. God is being patient in the meantime, giving everyone a chance to repent and believe the gospel. But someday, on the day of the Lord, God's wrath will breach the dam and it will be poured out. For those in Christ, God's wrath is poured out on Jesus instead of us. If the wrath isn't poured out on him, then it's poured out on them. This isn't a fun or fuzzy aspect of our doctrine. In fact, we might feel discomfort with this idea of judgment. That is, until we experience something that pokes us in a raw nerve, then we find ourselves longing for justice. You know, this could be anything from 
kids experiencing the hard knocks of the world or longing for fairness on the playground at recess or the ineffable horrors that plague our world, terrorist attacks, war, murder, rape, or whatever heinous savagery we read about in the news. Maybe then we see that justice and vindication by a perfect judge, it's a good, good thing. The wrath and justice of God in that case is a mercy. It's putting things right. It may make us squirm and maybe isn't the funnest of doctrines, but if we're really honest, even if we're not Christians, we have to admit that the idea of a day coming when all the evil and all the pain and all the wickedness in the world will be punished and eradicated, it sounds pretty compelling. Peter Jensen, the Anglican Archbishop of Sydney, said it this way. He says, God's wrath is his holy response to our sin. It is a righteous anger at unrighteous behavior, indeed at unrighteous beings. It is completely just. Indeed, it is an expression of love since it takes us with utmost seriousness and refuses to accede that we are like insects, not responsible for our actions. The wrath of God is one of the foundations of the whole moral and spiritual order. The day of the Lord is the day when God's wrath will be poured out. Now, this is just scratching the surface about the day of the Lord, but hopefully enough to, to give us something to, to go on. You can see how deep the rabbit hole goes on the day of the Lord if you start by searching out that essay. So what about the day of the Lord? Paul brings the metaphor one right after another. You know, why use just one metaphor when you can use like five and mash them all together? At first, he says, the day of the Lord will come like a thief in the night. Pretty simple, self-explanatory, right? We get this. It will be sudden and unexpected. Thieves tend not to make appointments to rob you. They arrive suddenly and without warning, usually in the dark, right? You can't control it. You don't even know it's coming, unless you're like Kevin McAllister in Home Alone, but that movie wasn't even around when Paul wrote this, so that's irrelevant. The end will come like a thief in the night. Paul gets this metaphor from Jesus. This is what Jesus says. And then Paul says at the end, that says the end will come while folks are safe and sound. Another metaphor. Uh, safe and sound, comfortable and easy. And then he says sudden destruction will come. Paul's meddling with an idol that we U.S. Americans may have worse than any other civilization in history. And that is comfort and ease. Comfort lulls us into complacency. Right? And the shock of the day of the Lord will be a more intense experience due to our peace and security. You know, but wait, there's more. This sudden destruction will arrive like labor pains come on a pregnant woman. This isn't typically unexpected, right? When someone is pregnant, we say they're expecting. And unlike the thief, it's expected, but it's still sudden and unavoidable. Sudden because you don't know when exactly labor is going to begin. Only 4% of babies are due on their due date. That prediction accuracy is like meteorology. It's about the same as the, the weatherman there. We don't know when labor is going to begin. That's why we get our ba go bag ready and the car seat purchased and the nursery set up. Right? But we know that labor pains are coming. That is, like labor pains at the end of a pregnancy, the day of the Lord is inescapable. Or we might say it's inevitable, but unpredictable. Now look, here's the main thing we need to know about the day of the Lord from this section. No one will ever know exactly when Jesus is going to return. No one will ever know exactly when Jesus is going to return. Jesus himself said so. Paul reiterates it here. And we have a history littered with failed predictions. I'm not sure why everyone continues to pick dates and continues to be wrong throughout the, century, the centuries. You know, if you're around my age, you might remember 
the Heaven's Gate cult that predicted the end of the world. This was in 1997 when the Hale-Bopp comet was coming by. They thought they were going to hitch a ride on the comet, and they're matching sweatpants and black and white Nikes, and they all committed suicide together. It's tragic. And several years before that, in the early 90s, there was a a group in, in Seoul, Korea that sold their homes, quit their jobs. Some even had abortions to prepare for their pastor's failed prediction of the end of the world date. I mean, it was devastating. You know, spoiler alert, those were not the end of the world. And you can go back and just see dozens and dozens, scores of these failed predictions. Predicting the exact timing of the end of the world is a fool's errand, right? No one knows. No one will know. Jesus said so. Paul says so. We know from experience In the case of Jesus' return, the end of the world as we know it, we need to be prepared, but we do not know the day or the time. As Jesus said, the kingdom of God is at hand. He told parables about being prepared, having oil for lamps, keep your lamps trimmed and burning, sings the old African American spiritual. He told a parable about being ready and dressed for a wedding. The point, we can't know the exact date, but we know the day is coming, so we've got to be prepared. And then Paul turns a corner in verse 4. He says, but you, brothers and sisters, but you, brethren. Paul says, but you won't be surprised, and then proceeds to tell them, to remind them who they are. Again, it's expected. He's like, you're not going to be surprised when this happens. You don't know the day, but you know that it's coming. And he reminds them who they are. This is a question of identity. I love the way Eugene Peterson puts it in the message. He renders verse 5 like this. He says, we live under wide open skies and know where we stand. We live under wide open skies and know where we stand. Paul explains who we are as Christians with some comparisons. More metaphors. First, he says, we do not live in the darkness or night. Rather, we live in the light or the daytime. He says, we are children of the light, children of the day. Then another metaphor. He says, we are awake and not asleep. And this gets a little confusing because he also uses awake and asleep to mean alive or dead before and after this. But here he means awake in the sense of alive to the kingdom and alive in Jesus. We can't control when the day of the Lord arrives, but Paul seems to be giving us some agency here because we can generally control whether we are awake or asleep, or at least we have more control of that than we do when Jesus returns, right? Paul's main message here in this little section of our passage seems to essentially be, be who you are. Be who you are. Like in Ephesians 4, when Paul says, walk in a manner worthy of your calling. And then he explains what that means. Humility, patience, love, and gentleness. Be who you are. You're children of the light, he says. You are awake and not asleep. So don't be sleepy and drunk and checked out and anesthetized to life and the kingdom. And then Paul gets right down to the foundation of our identity in verse 9. For God has not destined us for wrath, but to obtain salvation through Jesus. There is an end for you, and it is salvation in Jesus. Jesus' death and resurrection is the root of the Christian's identity as awake and sober people, alive to the new life in Jesus and awake to the kingdom. And then verse 10, where we see awake and asleep meaning, again, physically alive or deceased. Paul, again, saying it doesn't matter if you're alive or if your loved one has passed away already. That was a concern that Josh talked about last week. Salvation is in Jesus no matter what, alive physically or dead physically. John Stott put it this way. He says, our hope of salvation is well-founded. It stands firmly on the solid rock of God's will and Christ's death. 
and not on the shifting sands of our own performance or feelings. The ultimate reason why we should be bold in anticipation of the second coming of Jesus lies not in who we are, children of the day of the light, but in who God is as revealed in the cross, the giver of salvation and life. Because of what Jesus has done, that's how we can be children of the light, not the other way around. Our identity and our hope as children of the light and of the day is because Jesus and what he has done. And now if we are in Christ, there are implications for how we live now. The subtitle of this series of sermons is Living Today in Light of Tomorrow. Living Today in Light of Tomorrow. That is, since we know Jesus died, was buried, and rose again so that we too might live the life that is truly life, since we are children of the day, since we know that the day is coming when Jesus returns, though we don't exactly know the exact date, right? So what? How do we live today? How then shall we live today in light of tomorrow? Several things here, hopefully quickly, and then we'll sing and come to the Lord's Supper. First, Paul says, be alert. How do you live today in light of tomorrow? Be alert. Verse 6, be ready, be prepared, keep awake. You know, it's so easy and tempting to drift through life, numb, distracted, asleep to reality, blissfully unaware, as they say. We're surrounded by so many things designed us, designed to keep us distracted and unalert, right? Being alert means having a right relationship with reality, awake to the reality of the brokenness in the world, acknowledging the harsh reality of death as not the way it's supposed to be, Lamenting brokenness and the pain of the world like we did earlier in prayer, the sickness, the violence, the wars, our own personal afflictions, name it. Cry out to God. While at the same time, also being alert and awake with eyes to see the kingdom of God coming here on earth as it is in heaven. It comes in fits and starts and bit by bit, but the kingdom is coming nonetheless. To be awake, alert, and alive means to see all the brokenness and wickedness in the world and see the kingdom coming wide awake. In the church early on, apparently they used to do this. They would think about and pray for the day of the Lord. You know, the last words in the Bible are a prayer that keeps us alert and awake. And they're the words, come Lord Jesus. Apparently this was a, a prayer in the early church, prayed as one word in Aramaic, Maranatha, which means come Lord. Praying that prayer is a great way to be alert and awake. Paul also tells us to be sober Verse 8, be sober. Being literally sober is a good idea. Don't get drunk on alcohol or lose your mind with substances. But even more so, metaphorically sober, calm, collected in spirit, temperate, thoughtful, clear-headed. Don't move through life like you're drunk, sloppy, upset, thoughtless, out of control. If we press the metaphor of sobriety versus drunkenness, what are some ways to pursue sober living? You know, I think of accountability and healthy relationships. You know, this is the key to support groups like Alcoholics Anonymous. You know, have friendships where we are known by folks and who know what's going on in our lives and who can point us to Jesus. Those relationships can be sort of a spiritual sobriety test. You know what a sobriety test is, right? You get pulled over and the officer has you do the alphabet backwards or do the walk with the touch your nose thing. Right? What is a spiritual sobriety test for you? Part of it's knowing what your own chosen substance is to avoid alertness and avoid awakeness and then keep an eye on it, quit it or reduce it. You know, whether that's literally alcohol or Netflix or video games or whatever, those things are fine in moderation, probably right. But if we've got something that keeps us anesthetized and asleep, 
put boundaries around it, pursue sobriety. Paul also says that we need to be armed. In verse 8, be armed. Or if you're not into the militarist metaphor, be clothed with the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, the hope of salvation. You know, kind of riffing off of what he writes to the Ephesians, the armor of God. Arm yourself with the classic trinity of faith, hope, and love. John reiterates this in Revelation chapter 16. He writes, Jesus is saying, Behold, I am coming like a thief. Blessed is the one who stays awake, keeping his garments on, that he may not go about naked and be seen exposed. We need to be prepared and properly clothed, so to say. Put on Christ. Paul uses this metaphor of clothing ourselves with Jesus all the time. Put on Jesus. This is how we are armed and stay ready with the breastplate of faith and love and the helmet, the hope of salvation. Faith, hope, and love. You know, if these are things that we can do for ourselves to live today in light of tomorrow, here's what we can do with and for one another in community. I realize I'm encroaching in verse 11. We didn't read that. But this is verse 11. Paul says, therefore, right, because of all this, therefore, encourage one another and build one another up just as you are doing. Encourage one another and build one another up. Josh has mentioned this a few times recently that to encourage means literally to pour courage into. You know, and I'll confess to you, I'm, I'm not the best at this. You can ask my poor family. I always bend towards what needs to be fixed and what can be improved upon and reformed, which far too often comes across as discouraging and tearing down. I don't even do it intentionally, which is maybe even the more frustrating. Y'all, we are all struggling and need encouragement. Certainly not all struggling with the same stuff, but I don't think I've ever met anyone who didn't need some courage poured into them for something or another. Listen to what Reverend John Watson wrote. This was at the turn of the last century, in 1903. He says, this man beside us also has a hard fight with an unfavoring world, with strong temptations, with doubts and fears, with wounds of the past which have skinned over but which smart when they are touched. It's a fact, however surprising. And when this occurs to us, we are moved to deal kindly with him, to bid him be of good cheer, to let him understand that we are also fighting a battle. We are bound not to irritate him. This quote seems to be where that now famous expression comes from, be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. People attribute that to like Plato. It's not. They think it comes from this. Be kind for everyone you meet is fighting a hard battle. Everyone needs this encouragement. Friends, all of us, all of us are fighting a battle on some front. We are all getting beat down in some way or another. We need encouragement and to be built up. And the only way that happens is if we do that for each other. Those other things are things we can do on our own. This is something that has to be done together. And it's one of the most important jobs of the church and one of its greatest blessings. Listen to how the writer of Hebrews puts it. This is in Hebrews chapter 10. It says, Let us consider how to stir up one another to love and good works, not neglecting to meet together as is the habit of some, but encouraging one another and all the more as you see the day drawing near. As the day draws near, we need encouragement all the more, especially as we look to the day of the Lord. Encourage one another. Spur one another on. Keep meeting together. Keep showing up for one another. You know, what would happen if we went around encouraging anyone and everyone we met? Using our words to build up, pouring courage into everyone we encountered with a band. And I imagine that'd be a pretty beautiful picture. All right, let me wrap up with the 
words to the spiritual. Keep your lap, lamps trimmed and burning. It's an old African-American spiritual. It goes, keep your lamps trimmed and burning, for the time is drawing nigh. Darker midnight lies before us, for the time is drawing nigh. Lo, the morning soon is breaking, for the time is drawing nigh. Christian, journey soon be over, for the time is drawing nigh. And the refrain goes like this, children don't grow weary. Children don't grow weary. Children don't grow weary, for the time is drawing nigh. Let me pray, and we'll come to the Lord's Supper. Father in heaven, we give you thanks that the times are in your hands, that though the nations rage and earthquakes, that you are ultimately in control, that this life is a long, hard road, but it has a good, good end. We confess that we far too often spend our days asleep or drowsy, distracted, inattentive to your kingdom, anesthetized by our various escapist habits. Have mercy on us. Wake us up. Let us be alert and prepared and sober and not anxious, not hiding from the often harsh realities of the world, but seeing clearly, lamenting as needed and yet hoping. Give us grace to clothe ourselves with Jesus, resisting, uh, resting rather in his (coughs) death and resurrection for us and looking toward the day when he will come again, to establish his reign and the kingdom for good. And in the meantime, would you use us to encourage one another and build one another up. Make this church into a beautiful community that gives glimpses of your kingdom. Come, Lord Jesus. Amen. You've been listening to a sermon from New City, a church in Cincinnati, Ohio. Visit our website at newcitycincy.org for more sermons and resources. That's newcitycincy.org. Thanks for joining us today, and God bless you.